1: Whatever you think about Colin Kaepernick, and I know there's a faction, you know, sort of fighting within the players that are more pro-Kaepernick and Malcolm's Jenkins side and whatever it is. But And whatever you think of what the league came up with, and maybe it's $90 million over seven years, it's not all ironed out, and people say that's not anything. But And the letter from Doug Baldwin and Roger Goodell to the Senate, I mean, that doesn't happen without Kaepernick. That's an astounding fact.
2: Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to the former vice president of the Green Bay Packers, longtime commentator on ESPN, columnist for Sports Illustrated, currently with The Athletic, and host of the podcast, The Business of Sports, Andrew Brandt. Also, I've got some choice words about LeBron James, Fox News, and shut up and dribble. Which was the talk of the NBA All-Star Game. I also have some words about what happened in Florida with the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and the response of Steve Kerr, which I think is very important and should not be forgotten. Also, have Kaepernick watch. And for our patrons, and you could become a patron at Patreon.com/EdgeOfSportsPod. I've got another edition of Chronicles on the Edge. Uh, and the story of how I met 1968 Olympian and current bestie, Dr. John Carlos. But first, Andrew Brandt. Um, Andrew Brandt, I I have to start with what's the story of this week, and that's the controversy with LeBron James and Fox News and one of their hosts telling him that he should just shut up and dribble – I would love to ask you, what is your perspective on this uh, iteration of the outspoken athlete in 2018, and is your perspective on it different when you are in the media? Because you've worn so many hats. So when you're in the media versus being in the front office, like how, has your perspective shifted on this at all, and, and what's your general perspective today?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. There's a lot to unpack here, and I go back to when I started my career as an agent I worked for a guy named David Falk, kind of super agent in basketball, and we had Michael Jordan. And I remember what everyone talks about is sort of these comments about Republicans buy shoes too, and everything was kind of uh, antiseptic, and there was no real stance taken by Michael as he was kind of the lead marketing guy in the country at that time. And I remember even how hard it was to get endorsement deals. He was probably the first black athlete that really got national marketing deals. Uh, You know, there was Walter Payton on the Wheaties box. There were a couple others, but there wasn't a lot since Muhammad Ali. I'm talking about a team sport athlete that's very rare. So I remember kind of how, even as a young person myself, I'm like, hmm, you know, he's not really saying anything. And then it kind of dawned on me that, well, you know, he's a young guy, He doesn't have a lot of experience talking politics, talking social issues, talking whatever it may be. So yeah, I guess that's not really his role. And I kind of looked at it, and that was before, obviously, Twitter and anything else, sort of debating these things. As I've gotten older, I realize how much of an impact these people have to our young people, to society in general with the increasing attention on sports and the increasing attention on top athletes. Um, and then I really noticed it over these past years, you and I have talked about since Kaepernick and really making a voice, having a stand, doing things that are hard. And when I say hard, just not just standing at a award show, not just wearing a pin, but, you know, being out there. And I, I've come to really admire that in athletes because they are taking risks. And I know from all my experiences you've mentioned that the real the business of sports comes down to this in my mind. There's so many athletes for so few jobs. And when you take a risk, you put yourself out there because you can always be replaced. Now <laughs> this is a long winded way of getting to your question, which is LeBron James, here's one that can't be replaced. So you have athletes like that, and they not only have the pulpit, but they have no repercussions from the, team, from the business of sports. They will not lose their job. They will not lose their marketing. These are irreplaceable athletes. So I applaud LeBron. Obviously, it was an easy clapback uh, when... The commentator made that, of course, you're going to come back and say that's ridiculous. I think everyone on, on maybe all sides, I all, can't speak for that, thinks it was ridiculous. And it's really trying to put athletes in their place. And it goes back, I know it's a long-winded answer, Dave, but it goes back to what happened this fall with the NFL. After the initial outcry and clap back to President Trump's remarks, I certainly got the feeling, as you did, I think that owners sponsors networks after a few weeks of that like okay that's enough Mm -hmm. let's get back to sports uh that was nice you had your moment and the players that didn't want to get back to that had a voice and got roger goodell and every owners to the table and we can debate what came out of that substantively but again Using the leverage they have to make a difference, that has impressed me more in the past few years.
2: Yeah, I definitely want to get to that. Um, It's interesting talking to you about a perspective from the front office because you were uh, in the front office of the Green Bay Packers, which has an ownership structure unlike any other in sports. And I guess that's the first question I want to ask you is like how – I mean I assume you've had conversations with other GMs, other front office types. Like how is that different working for the Packers as opposed to working for an NFL franchise where you may have an owner down the hall? And I'm sure it depends owner to owner, but it does, does it feel like almost a competitive advantage for the Packers in that the football people get to talk without someone who maybe thinks they know more than they do because they own the team?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, one thing, there are a lot of ways we were different. The one thing on the pure business side, I was responsible for all the contracts, the salary cap, running our player payroll, which could go anywhere from, depending on the year, $100 million to $175 million for 70 players. And, you know, whether I did a contract for a guy worth $20 million or whether it was worth $40 million, There was no one really saying, hey, Andrew, that, you know, this is really how it should have been because they trusted me to know the market and to handle the dollars. And I don't know if any other, whatever you want to call me, cap manager, contract negotiator had that around the league. I'd hear from colleagues that would be in a negotiation for months and the owner would walk in and say, hey, I want that done today. And they'd lose all leverage and they'd have to give the agent whatever he wanted. I never had that. On the other hand, I'm a pretty cautious person. I'm pretty risk-averse, and I think that's what you need in that role because you do have that awesome responsibility of handling the Green Bay Packers where there was no oversight by an owner, and there was so much trust given to the football operations, whether the general manager for personnel, the coach for coaching, and my area on the financial side – Dave, I really saw my role as sort of a steward of a public trust and doing contracts, doing the cap, running the business side as if I'm always thinking about the shareholders, which were, of course, hundreds of thousands of cheeseheads around the world. And I I accepted the responsibility and I sort of treated it with the magnitude that I thought it deserved. On the player side, I always thought, you know, we had – to be a little higher maybe than the norm on the character side. Um, you know, I remember I'd sit in there with, uh, say, a defensive line coach who really wanted this player, and he had a rap sheet a, a block long with sexual assault, drunken disorderly, a lot of fights. And I remember, I'll tell you this story. I looked at him and I said, you know what? There's just no way in God's green earth we can bring that guy in here. You know, we're in central Wisconsin. That's not going to fly. And he looks at me and goes, "Andrew, what do you th- what do you want? What do you think we are asking him to do?" I said, "What do you mean?" "What do you think we're asking We're not having him teach 6th grade. We're not having him lead a boys choir. We want him to get into 75 street fights a day and win them." So that doesn't bother me. And I said, "But we've got to control that violence off the field and I don't know if he can." And then it was back and forth. I won some of those battles, Dave. I lost some of those battles, but I kind of looked at it, maybe a different angle being in Green Bay versus other places.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to ask you about the, the the nature of the sort of copycat nature of the league and front offices, because that, that's sort of a fan truism. And I don't know how much it is an actual truism, but I look at something like the Eagles winning the Super Bowl with a bunch of outspoken players. And I'm sure you probably heard Malcolm Jenkins and yeah. Chris Long say to the press uh, words to this effect, saying let it never be said again that po- political outside interests are a distraction from winning a Super Bowl. Let that excuse die now because we are the Super Bowl champions. How mu- I mean, how much of that really matters? And I guess is what I'm asking is how do you weigh – the sort of the copycat nature of the league, with maybe an, a particular owner who's p- politically conservative, and they're not going to want to hear that no matter what. That's obviously not uh, the owner of the Eagles, um, and playing and playing that to what you see in the NFL going forward. Do, you, do, do, do the Eagles winning actually have a catalytic effect on how the league views outspoken players?
1: Yeah, we'll have to see. I think so, because, I mean, listen, I'm, you're, I'm talking to you from my home in suburban Philadelphia. A block away from me is the home of Howie Roseman, not far as Doug Peterson, who I've known forever from being in Green Bay together. And I think they maybe not encouraged it, but they were fine. With that outspoken, they really amassed a team, I thought, with the right number of ascending young players, but a quality group of leaders and and people that were really going to take this team and not let it fall, even after the Carson Wentz injury. So much, I think, came from that. You talked about Malcolm Jenkins. I've had him on my podcast. I'm a big admirer of him because... Like we talked about with players, are they are they capable of speaking about these deeper issues? And he's someone I've really admired as yes. When he talks about these issues, especially mass incarceration, it lo- he has studied. He has met with people. You know, he and Chris Long famously, after a Monday night game, were at Tuesday 8 a.m. in Harrisburg at the state capitol. So they work. You know, they work. I always admire people that work. They don't just say things. They work. They read. They study. They know what to say. They're, they're measured. Uh, I also know Torrey Smith, another guy with a lot behind him. He reads. He studies. So all those things, I think, worked for the Eagles. Now, I always get back to the business of football. Would Malcolm Jenkins have that ability to do so if he was a backup player? Would Chris Long have that ability if he was a backup, if he was a marginal player, if he was not a leader on the team on the field as well as off? And that's where you have to—I do say, say I'm not so sure.
2: And what about if they played for a Bob McNair or a Jerry Jones, for example? Is that also an I'm not so sure, or if you start, do you think that makes you platinum-plated?
1: No, I think you're right. I think that's also an I'm not so sure— You know, when we talked about Kaepernick and people would bring up this team or that team, I just felt like, okay, we know a bunch of teams. It's just not going to happen no matter the need. And we saw it in Houston. Yeah. Um, But, you know, if an injury happened to a more progressive team in Seattle or whatever, yeah, there you saw an opportunity. So now what we're saying is if you're going to take that risk – you're really limiting your number of teams. You're limiting your suitors. You're limiting your markability. And that's why we started this saying, wow, they're taking a risk in a sport that's heavily tilted towards management.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that makes me admire Kaepernick more is precisely that he's not LeBron James and that he he knew what he was risking by speaking out, given where he was in his career. And I don't know, but by... I guess that that gets to my next question. Let me just say like, something about that because oh, please. I
1: think Kaepernick, you know, fits a lot of what I talk about on the business of sports. And first of all, everyone talks about these, you know quarterbacks getting these huge numbers. Jimmy Garoppolo gets one hundred and thirty seven million mm-hmm. from the same team that gave, that gave a huge deal to Colin Kaepernick. And the numbers, the clicks, the headlines, the hot takes talk about that big number. First of all, it's BS. (laughs) The numbers are not real. And everyone says, well, if you're a a franchise quarterback, you're going to make that money. You don't need to have it guaranteed in the later years. And I would point to Colin Kaepernick. Remember, he signed a huge deal, you know, 100-whatever million dollars. And remember, when he signed it, no one ever thought he'd get cut. And No one ever thinks Jimmy Garoppolo is going to get cut. Kirk Cousins, you know, pick a name, but it happens. And it happened with him for reasons that may be true off the field more than on, but whatever the reason. The other part with Kaepernick is that, yes, he he wasn't an insulated player contractually. He took a risk. And everything that happened... Whatever you think about Colin Kaepernick, and I know there's a faction, you know, sort of fighting within the players that are more pro-Kaepernick and Malcolm's Jenkins side and whatever it is. But And whatever you think of what the league came up with, and maybe it's $90 million over seven years, it's not all ironed out, and people say that's not anything. But And the letter from Doug Baldwin and Roger Goodell to the Senate, I mean, that doesn't happen without Kaepernick. That's an astounding fact, because I don't think anyone would argue that happens without Colin Kaepernick.
2: Do you believe you that? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, as someone with this front office experience, and I'm sure you've been asked this eight trillion times, but you know the bar for collusion is actually very low. It's, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the bar, according to the CBA, is. Did the commissioner have one conversation with an owner or did more than two owners talk to each other? I believe that that's it, – it's not about getting all 30 folks in a room. And so I'd ask, do you think that there's a collusion case or is this just more this kind of ephemeral yeah. culture of the league?
1: I mean I I will give you a piece of information, full disclosure, because I feel if I answer this question, I should be full disclosure – I was contacted by attorneys for Kaepernick with my thoughts about potentially being a consultant on the case or an expert. And what I'll say is, we had a conversation, and we did not pursue it anymore. Um, I just think, listen, there as a front office guy, I know there's a hundred variables. You know, I'm just picking a number into whether you sign a player or whether you extend a player or sign this player over another player. So my answer has been this to the, as you said, the hundreds of questions like this, do I think, well, it was more about another word, not the C word, the B word. So I get the B word more than Mm -hmm. the C word, which is blackball. Do I think Mm -hmm. Colin Kaepernick was blackballed? And my answer has been no. Do I think Colin Kaepernick's, in evaluating whether to sign him teams take into account much more than football and the answer is absolutely yes so that's a spectrum and you have one side of the spectrum that's blackballed and one side of the spectrum is we'll, we'll evaluate him only on football and it's neither so in evaluating a case i guess you have to figure out where along the spectrum it is and I don't know how that lawsuit's proceeding. I hear about discovery, but I just think as an outsider to the suit, we would have heard the smoking gun or guns by now. That's just my thought.
2: I I know that one of the, and I don't know if this is going to fly in terms of the CBA, but I know that one of the smoking guns, the loudest smoking gun in the United States that Kaepernick's attorneys are going to look at is Donald Trump like speaking right. explicitly about his conversations with owners. Now, I don't know – I mean when it comes to Trump, you don't even know if that's that's true or not, that he was talking to owners about this. Like that's – he says stuff. I don't know if you've heard. Sometimes he just says stuff. But whether <laughs> collusion is something that could involve the president of the United States, I don't know if that's legally there for Kaepernick to do. Um, right. But 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 it is an interesting approach in terms of like right. what I mean, is the smoking they,
1: I won't talk specifically of my conversations with the lawyers, but you bring up an idea that somehow it's triangulated from the Oval Office Mm -hmm. into collusion. And again, uh, we haven't seen a case. It's only been in baseball in the 80s and 90s. -hmm. But to me, a collusion case requires those two words, concerted action. And again, you're right. It could be two or more. It doesn't have to be 32. 32. Uh, two or more actors, but they would have to say we are not, We agree, right? We're not signing them, and I think that's really hard to find. I really think it's, it's hard to prove. Now, an internal conversation like I've talked about between an owner and a GM—that's not collusion, right? That's saying we're not going to sign this guy for that reason, okay? But collusion requires multiple.
2: Is it, is it a concern to you um, as far as – I mean we, we've all seen Kaepernick. We've all seen the good works. It's definitely a different kind of work than Malcolm Jenkins does, less about going to Harrisburg, more about how do I financially support grassroots organizing. And then, of course, the anthem protest to raise awareness about all of this um, or protest stage during the anthem. People get very particular about that phraseology so it doesn't sound like you're protesting the anthem, right. is does it concern you at all about the, I mean, for lack of a better term, moral compass of the league, that that's seen as a deficit the same way as you were describing earlier, it would be seen as a deficit if somebody had a rap sheet. Like when they're doing their pros and cons list, it's seen as a con instead of as something like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have somebody who rep represents in the community be associated with our team?
1: Yeah, I just... <laughs> I agree. I go back to the what happened this year and with the protests it was really instructive to anyone who follows these businesses, because, you know, you had the Trump remarks in Alabama, you had that week, you had that image of Jerry Jones and others locking arms all around the league. But I said at the time, Dave, I said, this is the easy part. Now it's going to get hard because players aren't mm-hmm. going to say this is a one shot deal. But to the owners, it really was. You know, it was really like, all right, we're supporting you, but let's get back to football. And that got tense. I heard it from owners. I heard it from players. I heard it from front office people. uh, Where it was kind of like, okay, back to sports, guys. And it wasn't easy. And I I still don't think it's easy. Like you Mm -hmm. said, the anthem part, you know what networks are covered at less may not even covered at all in the future uh less and less guys kneeling but i think like you said it's a much bigger issue and you wonder if teams are going to look at guys differently if you know they don't have established starter roles like a malcolm jenkins you know, it's funny because I was in Wisconsin this summer and I visited with old friend Aaron Rodgers, who I, you know, I'm admittedly biased. I think he's just, he's got it all on the field, off the field, just always knows what to say the right thing. And he told me, you know, he understands who he is. And when he says something, he's speaking for the team. He's speaking for the state of Wisconsin. He's speaking for the, for the entire Packer nation. So he's careful, but even being careful, he was empathetic towards Kaepernick, as his statements, I believe, ESPN magazine, are one of those. And uh, and I know Packer officials heard from fans like, yeah, we don't really like that. Now maybe those were the the silent or the loud minority, but it, it certainly was something that Packer officials heard, like, yeah, I don't, I don't, we don't like Aaron saying that.
2: I remember when he went out of his way to speak about a fan who yelled an anti-Muslim slur at a game, and nobody would have faulted him if he'd said, oh, I didn't hear anything, and it could have been forgotten so quickly. One Yahoo fan. And the fact that he still chose to say something, I mean, that was was really admirable.
1: Yeah, and he chose to be, you know, uh, I think he was a backer of the team signing Marty Bennett, who was a Mm -hmm. different signing for the Green Bay Packers. You know, they have usually signed guys, I've been there, that are less outspoken. And uh, okay. and Aaron was behind that until, you know, it kind of broke up in the middle of the season and there were some injury issues back and forth and name-calling. But that was another thing Aaron kind of stepped out uh, and did something different than the norm up there.
2: Let me ask you this. Uh, this is such a sidebar from everything I was asking you, but yeah. if you have... If you have to start a team with an average coach and average personnel, and you could have 30-year-old Tom Brady or 30-year-old Aaron Rodgers, where do you go?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, you're not going to get past my bias here, which is obviously my full disclosure and big bias because I'm a Brady fan. But I'd start my franchise with Aaron Rodgers over any player. I just think that the combination of off-the-charts uh mobility and just, I'll tell you, when he came to us, obviously it was a tough situation. We had the most durable starter in the history of football. And you have a Southern Mississippi guy who's just kind of like, you know, Brett. Mm-hmm. And then you have California cool coming in there. So that was not an easy transition and nobody in turn you know we hear stories about Brady and Garoppolo nobody likes to go to work every day with their successor <laughs> who's
2: that would really going suck. to replace them <laughs>
1: Yeah oh. So I watched that I watched that relationship start off a little frosty and get better and I really kind of took personal pride uh that the two of them were getting along by the time uh, Brett retired, but then, of course, he wanted to come back, and that's another story. But, yeah, when, when Aaron came in, we saw this incredibly wry sense of humor, this ability not to take things too seriously, which served him well. And then, of course, the on-the-field stuff with arm strength and mobility and smarts that we had, you know, really rare, really rare. See, that, so i got to ask you that, too.
2: Every, I mean, since you were part of... Drafting him, I've always when when I watch Aaron Rodgers on the field, there's this immediate wow factor in that. I mean, it could be the most simple pass, and you're like, okay, that guy's different than other people who do this. It's very right. quick, it's very immediate. I'm not the biggest college football fan for very uh, overwrought political reasons that we don't have to get into, <laughs> and I, so I, I gotta ask, like, what happened at Cal? that he's, I believe, the number 22 pick, Um, Alex Smith drafted number one. How does that happen given the wow factor that even a total layman can see when Aaron Rodgers is on the field?
1: Well, you're talking to a team that did not, I emphasize not, want to draft a quarterback. I mean, like I said, the most durable quarterback in the history of football is on our team in his prime. And Alex Smith and Aaron Rodgers are one and two, and, obviously we have a board that has maybe 20 players at that year rated first round grades. And we're hoping, okay, maybe, maybe DeMarcus Ware falls to us. Maybe Derek Johnson, maybe Marcus Spears, all these guys. And of course they all fall off. And then we look at Aaron and like, okay, Tampa's going to take him. No question. John Gruden told him that. Well, Tampa takes Cadillac Williams. Tennessee's going to take them. There's no question. Tennessee's going to take them. They take Pac-Man Jones. <laughs> okay. Kansas City's going to take them. There's no question they're going to take them. They take uh, Derek,
2: Derek Johnson. Johnson. Yep. I remember that. Anyway, draft. I forgot R- Ronnie are. Brown at number two. The Miami Dolphins, right, a team Ronnie that Brown. you know, kind of, sort of, has needed a quarterback these last twenty years.
1: But Dave, here's the scene, and I'm in the middle of it because I'm the guy between kind of the business side and the and the football side and our coaches are are rumbling because they see what's going to happen. They are rumbling like, Oh my God, we are going to take a player in the first round that can't help us. Maybe this year, maybe not next year, maybe not the year after, maybe never help us. And on the management side, we're saying, look at the board. There's only one player with a first round grade one you really want to stop, jump into our second-round grades just to take a defensive player? And what's our mantra in the draft room? Trust the board. So we took him.
2: <laughs> did, did he have the wow factor so, in college, the way he has in the pros? Is that part of I this? I can't.
1: I mean, I I wasn't the, the scouting side, but I think so.
2: I don't, I yeah. I think so.
1: I mean, again, the 49ers.
2: They almost drafted. Him. Yeah.
1: So uh, we get we luck out at number twenty four, but I I got to tell you this I've written about this talked about this. Ted Thompson had me get him on the phone, his agent and who was with him on and they were on TV and <laughs> they, were, they had moved the caterers had moved everything out of the room the poor guy, and I had to make the poor kid wait twelve minutes it was fifteen minutes because we were going to see if that phone rang. With an offer we couldn't refuse for I don't know two second rounders or whatever, and I always think about this: if that phone rang, the NFL could look a lot different. <laughs> it really could, and that phone never rang, and it was the longest twelve minutes, certainly of Aaron's life, you know, where I had to just keep him on hold, like hold on, and then I could tell him we're taking him.
2: Mm. Um. What advice? would you give Colin Kaepernick right now if he called you and asked for counsel and said, I'm interested in coming back into the league, I'm not interested in giving an inch in terms of, um, I've already said, remember, he's already said he's not going to kneel during the anthem, but he said he's not going to stop being the political person he is in terms of how he uses social media and the causes he endorses, but he wants to play in the league. What what advice do you give him?
1: Great question. I've never really thought about it, but I, I can answer that. I want to be clear on that because I think there were both. There was a report a year ago that he would not kneel anymore, but then it was kind of loose later in the year, like maybe, maybe not. So I'd want to be clear on that, and want to be clear on any issues he may have that would affect the team. So if I was representing him, I would be searching for meetings. Mm-hmm. Forget about signing. You know, if there's a team that has any any kind of interest, let's meet so they can hear it. And I think the thing about Colin is that he has to be real about money, real about role. We can't, you know, it's not worth debating is he's quote-unquote better than all these guys. The thing is, will he accept a backup role? Will he accept backup money? And if that's the best way to get back in the league, it could even be third string coming in. And maybe that's an ego downer, but that's the the reality. So the other problem, of course, is the collusion suit. And when that happened, I'm like, he doesn't really want to sue. He wants to get signed, and this is leverage Mm. that if a team wants to sign him, he drops the suit. And I'd want to hear a lot more about that.
2: That's fascinating. Because there are other folks, and these are folks who I would argue are predisposed to not liking him for a whole host of reasons, who said, you look at the collusion suit, that's proof he doesn't want to play anymore. But you could look at it completely the opposite way and be like he's fighting to get back into the league.
1: Yeah, I mean I I see it that way because everything from his attorneys has been he just wants to play. I know, and you you raise it. I mean, that's a hell of a way to try to get signed. But I also looked at it like playing for
2: keeps. Yeah,
1: he's got no. You know, he's he's exhausted ways to get in. Kind of traditionally, this would be leverage to dropping the suit. Uh,
2: You've been so generous with your time, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Uh, The answers are so smart and thoughtful. Um, I have one last question for you. And it's again, it's a question – it's one of those Andrew's gotten this question hundreds of times. But I would just love to get you on record uh, on my podcast around it because I would argue that when you look at issue – and you could even tell me if you disagree with about this. People say all the time the NBA is proactive. The NFL is reactive. uh, The NFL seems immobilized a lot of the time about what to do, whether it's around the anthem, whether it's around head injuries, whether it's around – Uh, the next contract. And I think that one of the things that's immobilizing the NFL is that there's a lot of existential uncertainty about what's going to happen in this sport (laughs) over the next 20, 30 years. What is it going to look like? I mean, especially if they are as close as they say they are at Boston University to creating a CTE test that can do tests on the living. Um, Where do you see football? I mean, do you agree with that Basic analysis, and, and where do you see football in 20 years?
1: Yeah, and, I, and I'm and i admitting I'm going to rail against sort of a narrative about the NFL in decline because I, I look at the numbers, I look at the metrics. Mm-hmm. First of all, ratings, yes, ratings are down, but they're the best product on television. There's no other sport entertainment programming that comes near the numbers. You can go through the top 100 programs. There's 64 of them. The top 10, there's seven of them. The top 30, there's 24 of them. Whatever it is, it's all NFL. There's nothing that's close. Mm -hmm. So, yes, declining numbers, that's true across the board in all sports, across the board in all entertainment programming. I don't see that as an issue. Head injuries, and I've talked to Chris Lewinsky a lot, and I've been a proponent of all that work and talked to many former players about head injuries. But here's the thing that is a public health issue. And that is a, a football health issue. That is not a popularity issue in my mind. We bemoan the violence, we lament the violence, but we crave the violence. Whether we think that's good or bad about us as people, as a society, we would not watch the NFL if it were not violent. And that's the, there is no issue in my mind that the increase in concussions or the, the increase in head issues will have any effect on people watching. Now, maybe it has a small effect on the talent pool, but as someone who's been in the business and sees thousands of players trying to get hundreds of jobs,
2: mm-hmm. I just don't see that. Here, here. I also read something. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Just that I read something interesting that. It was sort of like a, oh, by the way, article at the end of the season. Because all year I've been debating with people about the decline in ratings. Is it because of overproduction of the product and Thursday night games? Is it because of the Kaepernick effect? What are we talking about? Like these endless debates. And then at the end of the year I see this article that said, oh, by the way, we don't know yet how to calculate streaming services into understanding how many people are watching. And I'm like, oh, by the way, that's how my kids and their friends watch everything.
1: Right. And— Thursday night football, which some people thought was going away, just got a huge increase. Fox, which has never been in Thursday night football or night football, is now taking over after CBS and NBC had their fill, had their run at it. And with a huge increase in rights fees and now that Twitter had a year, Amazon had a year, the NFL diabolically cleverly Wet their appetite. There you have these bidding now for Thursday night streaming, as you said,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and Facebook and Google and YouTube—they're going to join in. So the NFL is going to be rolling in money from these these uh, television products that everyone says are in trouble. Uh, having said that, you just mentioned your kids. My kids wonder what that TV thing is in the middle of the room. <laughs> Here's the real problem for the NFL and all sports leagues, and the NBA is doing better than the NFL. How to attract and maintain younger audiences. That's what they should be or are thinking about at 345 Park Avenue. Not so much the old feeling about, quote-unquote, TV and sort of the mainstream ways of viewership. Because this is all changing, as you said. Everything they've got a Verizon deal with mobile, I think, is great. They are recognizing this. They've got to improve in game. Uh, and, and I don't know what they can do about parking and traffic and concessions and vulgar and loud drunk fans, but they've got to make the viewing experience hip and full of action for younger viewers. I don't know what the future is for consumption because. There's just so much choice and change. We have to see where that goes. But I do think the NFL is thinking about it. And the last thing on on leadership, it's no secret. I mean, Adam Silver, he's more progressive. He's more receptive. uh, He's more open to change. And an area that I've covered as well, gambling, he's been the leader on that forefront. But he's working with a populace, that, it, I don't know, I mean, it's cool, it's hip, basketball lends itself to highlights better, basketball lends itself to urban culture better, it's just, a, it, it moves quicker, it's like you said, it's it's more nimble, so uh, I think they're going to continue to increase, but in terms of the, the, the footprint, I don't think they're going to come close to football.
2: And that's, wow. I got one last question for you. This is, I always ask everybody this, yeah. uh, Andrew. I'm, unlike some of my other questions, I'm going to guess this is the first you've been asked this, but I, I'd love to know <laughs> what kind of music you listen to when you got to get psyched up, whether it's to exercise, uh, whether it's to write something and you need extra motivation. What is your musical caffeine? What is your ear coffee?
1: Oh, uh, that's a great question. Because, first of all, I am musically trained. I <laughs> Wait, what? I played piano from early on. Uh classical growing up. Damn. And now I play all jazz. I have uh, been taking jazz piano for about 20 years uh as an adult. And I play everything from Bill Evans to Thelonious Monk to um standards Duke Ellington. And I love it. Uh I do not write mm. Or work without music. I find it very hard. Um, mm-hmm. And it's going to be jazz or it's going to be uh, kind of, I don't know, it's not quite new age. It's kind of like you said, kind of um, inspiring music, um, even classical. You know, when I have something that I really want to focus on, I'll play Adagio for Strings by Samuel Barber. Um, and then when I want to get going, I work out. Also, I'm a triathlete, and I try to be very clear about my workouts. Um,
2: Dude, you're a triathlete who plays I'll, jazz piano. You trying to make the yeah. rest of us just feel bad? I mean, what's that about? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I go with I'll go with more of an upbeat. I'll go with Pearl Jam. I'll go with. Uh, there's a sort of a jazz guitarist. I really like Pat Metheny. He's got some more upbeat stuff. Um, but I will tell you this on that. You know, I don't want to sound like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm living above everyone else. When I left the Packers, this is personal because I had young boys and I just felt like my time was entirely spent worrying about uh, the Packers. And... I, you know, I I was nervous. I was anxious about doing these contracts and getting our team. And I remember my wife and we had our kids asleep in the back and I was all hype, you know, crazy about some contract negotiation. She said, what are you so worried about? I said, well, I'm worried about the Packers legacy. You know, I don't want to leave behind cat mess or anything like, and she looks at me and she goes, look in the back seat there. That's your legacy. It's Not the Packers. So it kind of hit me and I just wanted a different life. And, uh, since then I've tried to create a presence in media, in academia, and just really give back, give back my knowledge, give back in writing and TV and radio and teaching, give back everything I've learned from 25 years in the business. And then of course, be around for my two boys. Uh, and to finish up with the music, my older son is now at NYU's Clive Davis School of Music. So he has taken that from me, and he is way past me in his musical abilities.
2: Andrew Brant, thanks so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports Podcast. Had a great time. Thanks, Dave. Now I've got some choice words about Shut Up and Dribble, the message from Fox News to LeBron James. Okay. Whatever her name is, this is how LeBron James referred to amateur Fox News host and professional bigot Laura Ingram. The Ann Coulter mimeograph devoted an entire segment to mocking LeBron James's intelligence and telling him to, quote, shut up and dribble, end quote. It's a tired critique that has been used to shut down outspoken black athletes for as long as there have been outspoken black athletes. Ingram was melting down on air like a certain particle of snow because James and fellow all-star Kevin Durant had criticized Donald Trump for being Donald Trump. James in particular earned her ire for saying, Trump really don't give a bleep about the people. While we cannot change what comes out of that man's mouth, we can continue to alert the people that watch us, that listen to us, that this is not the way, end quote. Ingram's goal was to provoke a response and create the kind of buzz that would provide more content for Fox News, content she could then feed into a racist Inception loop of coverage about herself. It's a troll move, played out on a major cable news network. My own theory has long been... That the best possible response to these people is to starve them. For their species, the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. Yet in this case, I was very wrong. LeBron James did more than just respond. He provoked a tidal wave of support from his own personal Justice League in the world of sports. It started with James, who said, We will definitely not shut up and dribble. I will definitely not do that. She did the best thing to help me create more awareness. I get to sit up here and talk about social injustice and equality because a woman on a certain network decided to tell me to shut up and dribble. So thank you, whatever her name is. We quickly saw that LeBron would not be the lone voice to stand against Ingram, not by a long shot. Kevin Durant called her racist and ignorant. Dwayne Wade tweeted, They used to try to hide it. Now the president has given everyone the courage to live their truths. Players Union Executive Director Michelle Roberts said, Between LeBron's 40 million followers and Kevin Durant's 17 million followers on Twitter, Laura Ingram has now introduced herself as intolerant and narrow-minded to 57 million people around the world. We stand with our players. Damn. That damn was for me, not Michelle Roberts. Even Commissioner Adam Silver, unprovoked, started his State of the NBA press conference by speaking in support of politically vocal players against these kinds of attacks. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Faster than you could say, Roger Ailes was a serial sexual predator who built Fox News on a foundation of lies, We Will Not Shut Up and Dribble was trending worldwide. What seems to have upset her the most is not the uniform charges of racism, but the sentiment expressed by Charles Barkley which was, LeBron James is LeBron James, who's Laura Ingram. The avalanche of response actually put Ingram on the defensive, compelling her to both invite James onto her show to discuss and make the following backpedaling statement. There was no racial intent in my remarks. False defamatory charges of racism are a transparent attempt to immunize entertainment and sports elites from scrutiny and criticism." So now we have Laura Ingram having to defend herself from charges of racism and her own obsolescence. And once again, LeBron has proven many of our conventional wisdoms to be simply wrong. When LeBron started, his goal of being a new template, the socially conscious mogul, was something I didn't think was possible, simply because it had never been done. You either had to be a Muhammad Ali or a Michael Jordan, a man or a brand. LeBron has crushed that binary. Similarly, I never thought there was any advantage to feeding a troll, especially one as insipid as Laura Ingram. But LeBron has created a new normal, where you can give other people confidence by stepping out and marshalling a collective response in the face of an unrepentantly racist, demonstrably violent right-wing echo chamber. Laura Ingram chose to read from a very old, very tired script in telling a black athlete to shut his mouth. She didn't count on LeBron James adopting a new script in response, and we are all in these tragic times better for it. And now, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Look, The Nation is producing indispensable journalism on a day in, day out basis. This week, we got John Nichols on the GOP canceling off your elections. Joanne Wipjewski on what she calls The Reckoning. You have to read to find out what that is. Sue Halpern on Libraries and Democracy. And so much more stuff in the areas of culture, in the areas of politics, and in the areas of economics. This is what The Nation is. It is absolutely indispensable. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please remember, when you support The Nation magazine, you support the continued existence of this podcast. And now, back to the show. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to Golden State Warriors coach Steve Kerr, a person who I've come to believe is without political fear. Maybe it's because of his background of being the son of Dr. Malcolm Kerr, who is a pioneer in the field of Middle East studies and was assassinated in 1984 when president of the American University in Beirut. Maybe it comes from having nothing left to prove after leading the Warriors to two championships and a 73-win season in three years. Maybe it comes from coaching in the Bay Area, where the air is just a little bit different. Whatever the motivations, Kerr has chosen to use his platform to reach people. And he did so after the mass shooting in Parkland, Florida that killed 17 young folks. Now, the greatest tool of the NRA and the politicians they own is our cynical belief that none of this can ever change. Meanwhile, racist politicians push for a wall to keep out imaginary enemies. This is depressing, but it cannot be an excuse for inaction. And Steve Kerr spoke to that dynamic before Wednesday's game against the Portland Trailblazers. And here's what he said.
3: Well, nothing has been done. Um, It doesn't seem to matter uh, to our government um, that children are being shot to death Um, Day after day in schools, it doesn't matter that people are being shot um, at a concert, at a movie theater. It's not enough apparently to move uh, our leadership, our government, the people who are running this country, uh, to actually do anything. That's demoralizing. Um, but we can do something about it. We can vote people in who actually have the courage to protect people's lives and not just. Uh, bow down to the NRA because they have financed their campaign for them so hopefully we'll find enough people uh, first of all to vote um, good people in uh, but hopefully we can find enough people with courage to actually help uh, our citizens uh, remain safe and focus on on the real safety issues not building some stupid wall for billions of dollars that has nothing to do with our safety but actually protecting us from what truly is dangerous, which is maniacs with semi-automatic weapons, mans, uh, just slaughtering our, uh, our children. It's disgusting. Thank
2: you. Thank you, Steve Kerr. Just Sit Your Ass Down award.
3: Sit Your Ass Down
2: goes to the racist hockey fans in Chicago who yelled racial slurs at Devontae Smith Pelly of the Washington Capitals. And shout out to Devontae Smith-Pelly for not putting up with it and immediately calling them out to the referees, getting them kicked out of the arena. I wonder if certain sports broadcasters uh, who said that Adam Jones was lying for saying that fans throw racial slurs are going to say that Devontae Smith-Pelly was lying also. Whatever it is, I mean, please... Just shut up and support Devante Smith-Pelly, and shut up if you're a fan and you think you have something to say to a player because of the color of their skin. You have no business in the sports world, and we're going to kick your ass out. We're going to reclaim sports from you, whether you like it or not. Now it's time for the part of the show that I call Kaepernick Watch, where we talk about the latest with Colin Kaepernick. This is a short one, and it just comes from the heart and and just something I wanted to share. I noticed that when a lot of folks were talking about LeBron James and him standing up to Fox News, and I noticed even when LeBron spoke about it himself, you didn't hear Colin's name, which I thought was really kind of interesting. And I'm definitely concerned about this idea of erasure. Colin Kaepernick, because his voice only got stronger last year precisely because he was pushed out of the league and then teams wouldn't sign him. He was blackballed or whiteballed or whatever word you want to use. Obviously, as we talked with Andrew Brandt, there's the collusion case to see how official that blackballing was. But the the concern about erasure is big. Uh, LeBron James is somebody who is part mogul, uh, part activist. Colin Kaepernick is all activist. And I don't know, I just I, I hope that as we talk about the successes of these NBA players in expressing and flexing their politics, that they give due to Colin Kaepernick the same way that Brianna Stewart gave due to Colin Kaepernick when she spoke about being part of the Me Too movement. Um, I think courage is contagious. I think you can't erase what Colin Kaepernick has done. And I think, though, there is still the need to amplify what he has done So here's hoping that LeBron James, who I know is a listener to this podcast, at least that's what I tell myself, um, (laughs) takes this to heart and uses his platform to make sure that Colin Kaepernick is not forgotten in this process. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Edge of Sports Podcast. Thank you so much to Andrew Brandt. Thank you so much to my producer, David Tigabu, flying solo this week. If folks want to support the podcast, remember, you can always go to patreon.com slash edge of sports pod. Every bit helps. And this week, we are going to have a special iteration of Chronicles on the Edge where I talk about... How I Met John Carlos, 1968 Olympian. It's a great story. Um, To everybody out there listening, please listen to back episodes of the show at edgesportspodcast.com. Please leave a rating or a comment on iTunes or Stitcher or your podcast app of choice. All of that makes a big difference. Please support The Nation magazine, thenation.com slash subscribe. And for everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.